Take your seats. Thank you, Laura. Well, <clears throat> right up front, let me tell you that I am not going to preach a sermon. Okay, let's get that out of the way right now. Um, I know that the pastor said that and it says it in the folder, but, but I, I say this because only those men who are called and subsequently ordained as ministers of the sacrament and the word rightly may preach. And that's because there is a supernatural aspect to preaching which undergirds the natural man's efforts to present the gospel. And an exposition or an exegesis of God's word that is devoid of the Holy Spirit and is not superintended by God in both its speaking and its hearing is not preaching. Now I, I, I bring this up and I make a point of it right up front because it is a part of understanding rightly ordered worship and that's what we will be talking about this morning. So I, I, don't, I say that I will not be preaching this morning, but I will not be mute either. As an ordained elder in the ARP, uh, it is my duty, and here I quote from our form of government, to guard and promote the spiritual welfare of the congregation, end quote. And this, in the absence of our pastor, Parenthetically, let me say we had, Elder Brunson and I had prepared this in his real absence, uh, and although he is with us in the flesh today, um, we are very grateful to all, for all that the pastor does for us and for the, op and the opportunity to give him a small rest, uh, I'm very happy to do. You may not know this, uh, but Elder Brunson and I are certainly aware of it. Uh, he does not take all the lead that he is entitled to. So when here is an opportunity to cut him a little, a little slack and give him a rest, we'd like to do that. All right, back to what I was saying. Uh, what I intend to do is give you an exhortation, and that's the official name of what it is when an elder speaks in lieu of an ordained pastor. So you are going to get from me an exhortation. And with that, let's pray. Lord, I pray that my words may be effective to the end that this exhortation is set out for. And I submit to you, our sovereign God, the effectiveness of these words. And I also submit to you that my listeners may hear what is intended for their spiritual benefit. May you superintend our words and our hearing this morning for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Amen. You may not believe this, but Pastor Webb gave me no boundaries for what I would give as an exhortation. Uh, and that's kind of a frightening concept. Uh, but uh, I am not, I did not just pick a topic arbitrarily. Uh, that's nothing but an invitation for me to get up on one of my various hobby horses, and I will spare you that. This morning I would like to take as my starting point, the conclusion of the pastor's sermon last Sunday. His text, if you recall, was 1 Kings 
the 11th chapter. And it was specifically the very sad story of Solomon's turning away from the Lord and toward other gods as a result of his being unequally yoked to his many, many foreign wives. Solomon knew better. And the pastor preached, in fact, that the Solomon sinned in knowledge. He developed what has been known since the Reformation as an attitude of latitude, which is a willingness to accept worship that is less than that which God expects and is perhaps more than his words command. It is a certain casualness when it comes to rightly ordered worship. Well, the pastor encouraged us, and I think it's worth repeating, never forget our own sinfulness, our own propensity to fall away, to deviate, to be weary of of striving, to cease being fearful of deviating from what we know to be right. We are to worship only as God commanded us affirmatively and to avoid those elements of worship that are not found in Scripture, regardless of how charming, traditional, or winsome they may be. We are to seek God in the worship he ordained for us. Solomon perverted right worship. Initially, in apparently innocent ways, but ultimately in ways that split his nation in two and gave the Hebrews untold generations of misery. It is a very sobering story, but it is not the only story that we can tell about right worship. And this is what I propose to build upon. Our text this morning will concern the restoration of right worship rather than the perversion of it. And I want you to notice the consequences of the restoration. Our text is 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 31 to 43, and I invite you to turn there and follow along with me as I, as I read it. 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 31 to 43. Now, the context of this, I'm plucking some text sort of out of context. So let me make sure we are uh, following here. In the time of Samuel, uh, the ark had been separated from the nation of Israel. In fact, the Philistines captured it. And eventually they returned it for it was just a bit too hot to handle, if you, if you know that story. And it ended up in a village known as Kiriath-Jerim, or however it's pronounced. Um, and this is all in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Which, and this town is in the hill country uh, where the borders of Dan, uh, Judah, and Benjamin come together. Not that far from Jerusalem, but it definitely was not in Jerusalem. Well, there the ark remained throughout the reign of Saul until finally, as you know, David replaced him as king. And one of the first things that King David did was to order that the ark be brought to Jerusalem so that there could be right worship. But due to a loss of knowledge about the rules for right worship, and in particular the handling of the ark, the Hebrews had forgotten how to do it. 
Consequently, on the way to Jerusalem with the ark, a man named Uzzah was struck dead for mishandling the ark. And that's in chapter 13. And David, in reverent fear, decided that this was too much for Jerusalem, and he took the ark aside to the homestead of a man named Obed uh, Edom the Gittite. Well, well eventually, uh, David prepared a place in Jerusalem uh, for the tent and for the ark, and the Hebrews relearned the correct way to handle the ark, and it was brought into Jerusalem. And that's covered in chapter 15 and 16. And now, here we are in chapter 16, and on this occasion, as the ark is brought into Jerusalem so that right worship can be restored, David composes a psalm of thanksgiving for the return of right worship. And I will cover the latter half of his psalm as well as the concluding narrative paragraph. Hear now the word of the Lord. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad and let them say among the nations the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field rejoice in all that is in it. Then the trees of the woods shall rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. And say, save us, O God of our salvation. Gather us together and deliver us from the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name to triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. So he left Asaph, and he is David, and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark regularly, as every day's work required. And Obed-Edom, with his 68 brethren, including Obed-Edom, the son of Jeduthun, and Hosah, the to be gatekeepers, and Zadok the priest, and his brethren the priests, before the tabernacle of the Lord at the high place that was at Gibeon, to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of burnt offering regularly, morning and evening, and to do according to all that is written in the law of the Lord, which he commanded Israel. And with them, Heman and Judathan, and the rest who were chosen, who were designated by name to give thanks to the Lord because his mercy endures forever. And with them, Heman and Judathan, to sound aloud with trumpets and cymbals and the musical instruments of God. Now the sons of Judathan were gatekeepers. Then all the people departed, every man to his house, and David returned to bless his house. Amen. What did we just read? This is a hymn, a psalm of joy and celebration at the restoration of right worship. Now compare this to Kings, 1 Kings 11 that we looked at last week. And it describes Solomon's failure to worship as he ought. And in both passages, we can see clearly that God's commands for worship are Specific. The words matter. They are, to use the term from last week, precise. They are not complete in every way. Circumstances vary from time to time and culture to culture. So we don't necessarily, in some circumstantial ways, worship the same way we do as, as they do in Uganda. But, 
As far as the elements of worship go, they are clear, they are universal, and they can be known by us. To the extent that they tell us how we are to worship our creator, they are also distinctive, unambiguous. And so reformed believers, as well as we here at Providence, hold to what we call the regulative principle of worship. We know that we are to seek after right worship. And in this, I trust, we are all in agreement. Now let me stop here and ask you a question. What follows right worship? What's the point? Is it to appease God? Is it to achieve righteousness? Is it to save ourselves or to save others? No, it's not. It's none of those. No one is saved through right worship. No one is made righteous through right worship or even right understanding. What follows? What is the consequence of right worship? We know it's vital, but what is the consequence? Well, joy. Yes, joy. Now we could elaborate on other fruits of the Spirit, but given the time we have, let's just stick to joy as a consequence of right worship. A right worshiper is a joyful worshiper. Joyful worship follows right worship. Right worship brings joy. It did for David in this passage. We just read it. And it should also do so for us. If we do not care about worship, we will despise the joy that it brings. And a case in point is David's wife, Michal. And in the very, if you can, just a chapter prior to what we read, you read that Michal despised David for expressing his joy at the return of right worship. And I suspect that you all know this. And one data point I, I bring up to prove it is that on Sunday morning, the 25th of December, this sanctuary was packed. And nobody brought you here with a cattle prod and leg irons. And everybody sang joyfully. Nobody regretted, as far as I could tell, being here. But let, let's investigate, don't take my word for it, let's investigate what Scripture says about this proposition that joy follows right worship. Let's begin with Deuteronomy 16.15. Here the Lord is telling the Hebrews to keep the feast of booths and they will be joyful. Seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses. Note how precise he is. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands Wait for it, so that you shall surely rejoice. Deuteronomy 28, 47 to 48, is sort of a negative proof of this. 
Here it lists the curses that will be visited upon the Hebrews if they fail to keep right worship. We read, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore, and then it goes on at great length with terrible consequences. Ezra 6.22. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord made them joyful. Psalm 63, verse 3 to 5. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with morrow and fatness and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. Psalm 95, verse 1 to 2. Mm. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. <coughs> Isaiah 65. And here I will... I've, a bit lengthy, I have to edit it out, but I'll skip a couple verses. In verse 2 we read, I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. Skipping to verse 5, who say, keep to yourself. Do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils. And then, going to verse 17 and 18, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. Going to the New Testament, let's turn to Hebrews 10.34. Here the preacher reminds the congregation that they joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourself in heaven. Or John 15, 11 to 12. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Acts 12, verse 14 a bit uh, humorous perhaps. But here we have a, a, the example where Rhoda, the serving girl, recognizes Peter's voice almost miraculously on the gate outside in the middle of the night. And because of her gladness, she doesn't even remember to open the door, but runs in and announces that Peter is at the gate. In Luke 1, 57 to 66, we read the story of the birth and the naming of John the Baptist, if you recall, his father Zechariah had been struck dumb because he questioned God's decision to name the child John. Well, at the time of his circumcision, then Zechariah indicates that despite tradition, the child's name would be John, just as God commanded. And the response, if you turn to that passage, you'll see, was rejoicing and singing. 
Luke 19, 28 to 40. This is where Christ is coming into Jerusalem for his final week on, with us on this earth, at least in, in bodily form. Christ gives precise instructions. Untie a colt that had never been ridden upon. That's fairly precise. And it reflects an unambiguous prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. And the consequences of this is that, of course, is the entry into Jerusalem. The whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God as Christ entered Jerusalem on the back of a colt. And such joy was expressed that the Pharisees told Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Christ responded that if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. The result of right worship is such that even inanimate objects rejoice. Paul writes in Romans 8, We know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And David, in the, in, in the text we just read, David sings that even the trees of the woods shall rejoice. So, we see from example after example that right worship is not an end in itself, but a means to an end. We cannot save ourselves by our own understanding. While we can certainly sin, as Solomon did, by not doing what we understand we are to do, we can also sin by making right worship an end in itself. We can idolize it. And if so, it becomes a work. And who is saved through their works? No one. Now Solomon justified his own carelessness, and the pastor uh, gave a very good example of that last week. He didn't abandon right worship because of ignorance. He chose to do so. But one's pursuit of right worship, if it is divorced from the joy that should result in properly worshiping our God and our Savior, can become a self-justifying end. I say again, joyful worship should follow from right worship. An anxious worshiper is not a joyful one. A critical worshiper is not a joyful one. A worshiper more intent on being right than his neighbor is, is not a joyful one. A solitary worshiper is not a joyful one. A somber worshiper anxiously carrying the solemn duty of right worship as well is not going to be joyful. I could go on, but let me ask you this now. And here's the point. Are we a joyful church? If I have caused you to doze up to this point, wake up now and consider this, okay? Are we a joyful church? Are you joyful Christians? Well, one response to that is to ask me, well, what do you mean by joyful? Okay, so let, let, let's look at this for a moment. What does scripture mean by joyfulness and joyful? Well, it is a fruit of the Spirit. And you can look in Galatians chapter 5 for that. Second only after love. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that joy is, and, and here is his words, a perpetual gladness of the heart that comes from knowing 
experiencing and trusting Jesus. Joy, in other words, is the response and the reaction of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nehemiah says in, 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 in his text, after Jerusalem had been secured and the wall built and right worship was restored, he says this. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had wept as they heard the word of the law. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's in Nehemiah 8. In Ecclesiastes, we read in the 7th chapter, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Which is easy, but you, if, you may know what comes next. But in the day of adversity, consider surely God appointed the one as well as the other. In other words, joy is called for in both circumstances. Joy has nothing to do with pleasure or comfort or ease. John Piper writes that joy is a good feeling in the soul produced, note this, produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the world and in the word. James tells us in his book, to count it all joy when we are faced with trials and suffering. The joy of scripture is the joy of being found. Of being restored. If you have ever been lost, I don't mean in a spiritual sense, but physically lost, perhaps as a child, perhaps if you've ever been lost and truly, completely, fundamentally lost and you have been found, you will know something of that joy. That's the joy of Scripture because we truly, all of us, have been lost and in right worship were found. It is a joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. We can't manufacture it. pastor can't stand up here and I can't stand up here and order you to go be joyful. It comes from the Holy Spirit. It cannot be made by our efforts, but if we seek it, we will find it. And as I said before, it has nothing to do with comfort, security, or even head knowledge. And by the way, I don't... Parenthetically here, I am not by any stretch of the imagination suggesting that head knowledge is unimportant or that you know, theological study is somehow not important or even essential to our sanctification. I'm just saying that joy comes from the Holy Spirit. It does not come from looking... Now listen to me here. Joy does not come from looking at what you are doing, it comes from looking at what Christ is doing. Do you hear me? 
If your eyes are not fixed on Christ, you will not have his joy. And if your eyes are fixed on your problems and what's going on inside you and in your life, then they're not fixed on Christ. Your joy comes from looking at what Christ is doing, not what you're doing. And look at this church. We've survived for two decades. If this is not Christ at work, I'm not sure what is. And in just the last two years, and some of you, I mean, as a member of the session, I'm very familiar with the money and the people and the, you know, the nuts and bolts of things. And I assure you that in the last two years, we have been blessed by growth in terms of spirit, in terms of just members, in terms of, the, of finances and security. And we have maintained through a very difficult time, a body of believers that care about right worship. And if that is not a miracle, and if that is not Christ at work, I don't know what is. And are you joyful at that? You should be. I certainly am. It is amazing. Well, we have an opportunity now, this year, to express this joy. And I could probably pick any Sunday in any year and say this, but I will, this is the particular Sunday where I'm addressing you, so here we are. We have an opportunity to express this joy in our right relationship with Christ, and at the risk of including some mundane matters, let me enumerate for you, by way of application, some of the practical ways in which this joy can be expressed. For joy without an expression of it is merely... I don't know, Buddhist meditation or something like that. I mean, we are called scripture every time it talks about people being joyful. They are doing something. So your joy needs to be expressed. Well, here goes. Are you giving what has been given to you in terms of money and time? And are you doing it joyfully? Or is the parting of your money and time an obligation and a hindrance? That, or perhaps you, you do do it, but you only do it under a sense of obligation and righteousness. Are you fellowshipping with one another? Do you stay for fellowship meals? And do you make it a point to talk to somebody that you've never talked to before? Do you? Do you make it a point to be joyful in your relationships? Have you introduced yourself to a visitor at this church? Are you praying for the needs of one another? Do you know the needs of one another? Do you participate in the congregational prayer every Sunday night where we lift up the needs of this congregation one by one? Are you banishing in your own life anxiety, suspicion, and doubt? Or are you letting worldly concerns such as politics or the crazy people in your office to interfere with your joy? Are you participating in some weekday devotional activity? Or is your intentional worship limited just to Sunday morning? Are you joyful in your worship at home? 
or as we prayed earlier, worship begins at home. Are you joyful there? Are you inviting... Listen to me here. Are you inviting the pastor into your home? Oh, no, I, I don't want to do that. I mean, there's a limit. Now, are you inviting the pastor into your home? And furthermore, are you inviting him into your life? Are you willing to share with the pastor, for that matter, the other officers of this church? We have an obligation to serve you. And how can we do that if you don't? In worship, do you sing unapologetically? I mean, do you let it go? Do you? Or do you just stand there mute because maybe you don't care to sing or maybe you're not joyful? Or maybe you're worried that people won't think you sing well? Trust me. I sing, I sing with gusto and I do not sing well. And my wife continues to stand by me Sunday after Sunday. <laughs> do you listen attentively to the prayers as they are being led from this pulpit? Are you participating in the prayers? Have you ever gone up to a deacon in this church, motivated by joy, and simply asked him, what can you do to help? Have you ever asked, how can you help with the children and the infants in this church? Are you engaging with the church officers in the broader work of the church? Have you ever cleaned a toilet in this church? That too. It's a joyful work. Have you ever mowed the grass? What do you know about the church's missions? Do you participate in praying for them? Do you give to them? As a church, as a body, we believe it is our joyful duty to participate with those missions, and so should you. Are you planning on participating this Saturday in the kickoff of the Christianity Explored program with our neighborhood outreach. Has, is your joy going to extend so far that you are willing to go and embarrass yourself out on the streets bringing the word to people who need it? Are you eager to know more about Christ? Are you a confident, joyful believer? Undaunted by the craziness of the world, for there's nothing new under the sun. We live amidst a fallen world, and that has always been the case. We can pretend that we carry a huge burden. The regulatory, the regulative principle of worship rests on our shoulders. Or we can joyfully acknowledge that it is Christ that carries us on his shoulders and we just do our part. Look, friends, we live as pilgrims. And at times there's no denying that the pilgrim's way is dark and wet and cold and at times we are hungry, ill, and, and even frightened. And I'm not talking here about 
joy as a happy, clappy, uh, irrational response to problems. That's not at all what I'm saying. And if you think at this point, then I'm, I have totally missed the mark. That's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about spiritual joy. And that such joy we know from example after example in Scripture can rest in the worst of times. And you cannot use tough times as an excuse to deny and walk away from the spiritual joy that is your right. It is your gift given to you by the sacrifice of your Lord on the cross. Do not spurn it. And know that we are never, no matter how dark that pilgrim way is, we are never alone because Christ is there and he will always be with us. He is our joy. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let's be joyful worshipers, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, my prayer is simple. Make us joyful worshipers, Lord. Because we are not, by our constitution, we won't do it without your hand. But we know that you're with us. So we look forward and we anticipate such joy to come. We pray this as a body of believers and we all 